to another episode of the Mr Barton Maths Podcast with me Craig Barton. This is yet another conference takeaways podcast that I record for the benefit of all those people who can't make it to some of these wonderful uh, CPD opportunities or even people who've been to them and are just looking for a kind of summary or a different perspective. This is the end of day two of the Festival of Education held here at Wellington College. I'm once again sat in the Master's Garden and I'm joined by my co-host from day one. He has returned the legendary Chris Bolton. Hello, Chris. Hello. Now, Chris, it's the end of day two. How are energy levels for a start? Still really high because this is an energising experience. It is, and you've just had some sandwiches, a couple of cakes, a cup of tea. I have. And you, feel very lucky. Good. Ready, right, we're ready to go. So we've seen quite a few sessions, and Chris has, has run a session as well. So I want to start with the first session I saw, which was um, behaviour with uh, Tom Bennett and it was called So Important We Forget It. Now, you've, I take it you've heard Tom speak many a time. He's a great presenter, isn't he, for a start? Yes, and the first time that I actually met Tom was here at Wellington back in 2013, oh, watching gee. him oh, do really? a talk there on behaviour. Yeah, it's when he was talking about the, the two schools, the school that senior leadership experience and yes. the school that the rest of us experience. That's it's an important metaphor. And that feeds back into what we were talking about yesterday. A good head teacher gets themselves out in the corridors and, and learns what's exactly. going on as well. So Tom identified, well, first, key point he made straight away, and we've had Tom on, on the podcast, so listen back, listeners, I'd, I'd uh, strongly recommend that episode. Um, he said that schools have lots of strategies for reacting to bad behaviour, but not that many mm. strategies for creating good behaviour. And a constant theme throughout the talk was get ahead of the behaviour. Don't just let the behaviour happen and then react get ahead of it and preempt it which is so simple so obvious yep. but not that many schools do it um a couple of well i liked quite a few things but i'll just pick out a couple of takeaways and um, he distinguished between two different types of good behavior one he called negative good behavior which is kind of compliance so not misbehaving mm -hmm. not swearing mm. and then positive good behavior which is developing habits of excellence so knowing how to act when you don't know the answer or when another adult comes in the room and so on um the point he made, and I thought this was interesting, he said behaviours become sidelined and marginalised in teacher training. But and So one point he made is that we need to have more of it. Mm. But the thing I was thinking as well, um, have you been on any of Doug Lemoff's training? I have, yes. So I hear, it's one of my dreams, I hear very good things about it. And, and one thing I do hear about Doug's training is that you have to kind of act out the training mm -hmm. in the moment. Yes. And I think, um, and for me, that's kind of cringy. I, I really struggle with role play and stuff, but I can understand its importance because, and particularly something like behavior, because it's all well and good talking through these behavior strategies mm -hmm. in theory. But then if you go from theory straight into the heat of the battle in the classroom mm -hmm. and you haven't rehearsed it, even though it's a bit of a fake context, yeah. I'd imagine it wouldn't be that effective. So I was thinking when Tom was saying this, yeah, we need more time um, on behavior, but we also perhaps need to change that behavior training, get it more like the Lemov model. Well, would you agree with that? 100%. It, it's the best training that I've been on. Ever. It's a big shout, that, but I've, I've heard mm. quite a few people say that. Oh, I'll tell you what I was going to uh, throw to you as well. Um, there's a parallel here with sleep. I'm obsessed with sleep at the right. moment and the importance of sleep. And I've reached the conclusion that if as teachers we don't solve the sleep problem, both mm. for teachers and students, we're wasting mm. our time with everything else, right? And I'm, I'm going to be spark, uh, speaking to Mark Healy about sleep and a couple of other people in the podcast coming up. But 
I drew some parallels here with sleep. Now, do you know, um, in medical training, to be a doctor, you probably, in all your five years of training, you'll probably have around about two hours training on the importance of sleep. And yet sleep can be linked to cancer, dementia, all a whole manner of things. And I'm thinking it's a similar thing with behavior. Like, if you don't get behavior right, it mm. almost doesn't matter about all the other stuff. Yeah. And yet, it's not a core component of our teacher training. So that, that worried me, and that kind of... Uh, really came to mind when I was when I was listening to to Tom speak and just a couple of practical things so Tom uh, said that there are three things that he would advise that teachers and schools focus upon uh, the first is normative messaging um, and he said here that social norms are incredibly powerful we tend to like following the crowd uh, we if other people around us are doing something naturally mm -hmm. we're swerved towards uh, doing the same thing but he said what you need to do is you need to flood and he kept saying that word flood kids and staff with normative messaging it's not enough just to say it once have an assembly put it up in a poster we've got to keep saying it we've got to set expectations repeat them practice them and rehearse them until they become the norm um, and I love this quote we need to be the conscious architects of the culture of our spaces we create and I thought that wasn't quite nice we've got to explicitly create the conditions we want and the norms that we want so I, I enjoyed that one um, Second point he made was routines. We need to get routines. We've got to identify the routine we want, uh, tell it to students, but then show what excellence looks like and si uh, tell them in simple, concrete language and then crucially keep practicing it. And this made me think, it's kind of like, good teaching like you wouldn't just teach them how to add fractions once and never revisit it and just assume because they did it once it was absolutely fine with spacing and low stakes quizzes you keep repeating it repeating it repeating it and don't wait till that performance dips mm -hmm. don't let it dip just keep repeating it so do the same with behavior get in front of behavior i thought that was really good and then the final thing that i'm going to ask you a question chris on this and mm. um, he said intelligent behavioral feedback and he said that every interaction between teachers and students need to be needs to be a feedback on the behavior so if they're doing the right thing either thank them and praise them or just don't interfere mm. i thought that was an interesting point we don't have to thank everybody Bit of good behavior just don't interfere and let, let students just learn that this is the norm this is what they're expected but if a student is not displaying the right behavior then don't be afraid to use sanctions and that feeds back into um, Amanda Spielman's talk yesterday where um, schools as if it's part of the behavior policy to write lines or community service mm -hmm. or whatever it will be they're not going to be brought down upon that as long as they can justify where it is and there was a wonderful question at the end and that was uh, from a teacher who said um, oh sorry a governor who said how can a school governor find out honestly about the behavior at their school mm. and Tom said ask the local supply agency what's behavior <laughs> I thought that was a really really smart it's clever isn't it? it was smart so my question to you Chris was um, was behaviour ever an issue for, for you when you were teaching? And did you, did you ever kind of learn any, whether it's either practical strategies or things that definitely don't work? What, what was your kind of experience of behaviour during your time as a teacher? So in my placement school, yeah, it was, it was terrible. Um, I can't remember if we talked about this yesterday or if I talked to somebody else about Oh, you said, yeah, it, one but, of uh, one, like a horrible experience in yeah, your second week Yeah, book a child in for months. <laughs> and oh, that's the right, week. yeah, yeah. And it's the, the big thing for me was just having an action that I could yes. take. Um, I even remember introducing this, and my system ended up being, which uh, uh, Joe Kirby helped me out with, was uh, print out all the names of the kids yeah. in your class and, and then have that up on the whiteboard. For every lesson. So now there's no stigma attached to name on the board. Ah, nice. And then if something good happens, you can put a tick and you can do something with that. I created this sort of slightly Byzantine uh, raffle system, but it got me through. 
and on the other side some kind of strike uh, which might lead to consequences so eventually it was like a dot for a warning a strike for uh, five minutes after school two strikes for detention three strikes for letter home, yep. call home something like that and then two days later I had to introduce the system having got to trial it out with four of the classes to that the very same year 11 that had uh, inspired it <laughs> and I remember starting the lesson this way saying so Monday didn't go very well so we're going to do something different and talking them through this and while I'm talking them through this I can clearly remember one um, kid at the back of the classroom feed a small pack of Pringles out just popped so can't stop yeah, yeah. going through one after the other but I just went through the whole presentation and by the time I was done so now that I've explained all this um, uh, uh, please put the Pringles away to it, and the response I got was no it was carried on eating Pringles so, okay so so because I've asked you to do that now you have it that's that, that's a warning sure uh, dot on the board to which the response was one Pringle still in hand ooh a dot <laughs> carry on eating so, yeah okay stop but so now I'm going to ask you to put them away again yep, and if you yep. say no again then that becomes a, a strike and then that's going to be five minutes after school and we can keep going yep. but then eventually you know where this leads and she just kind of looked at me and, and just like popped the lid on nice. threw them in the bag and just kind of glared a little bit but carried on and it, it wasn't always just what the it wasn't a perfect system it didn't work all the time but it, it, it did at the very least give me some action I could take compared yes. with no action I could take but I think the problem we had uh, and one of the big problems we had in the school was we didn't have all of the the great, the positive upfront stuff that you've just said Tom was describing. So one of Doug's techniques is called narrate the positive. And I've often said that we need teach like a champion because a lot of the behaviors described in there aren't natural. Yes. When you ask everyone to start doing something and they don't immediately start doing it, it doesn't matter whether that's because they just switched off for a moment or they didn't understand the instruction or or something else, which actually isn't an, an act of absolute defiance. Yes. We see them not doing it, and then the automatic response is, why aren't you doing the thing I just yes, asked you to do? Yes, yes. And now you're signaling to the whole room that nobody's doing the thing you asked them to do, and the people who are doing it are now looking up to see, well, who isn't doing it? Why aren't yeah. they doing it? Whereas instead, narrate the positive, or positive framing would just be, uh, well, uh, yeah, uh, even if only two people are saying it, you say, like, um, thank you to these people for making the start, or I can see these people made the start, and somebody's going to make it up a bit. Five people have started, ten people, they haven't, but they don't all know that. And so to be just creating, and, and actually, I often do that and just watch kids go, oh, yeah, sorry, and it, yes. almost like switch back on, I was like, yeah, of course I need to, yes. to begin. They weren't being openly defiant. And, um, and it's almost creating that social norm, right? You, you are exactly you're, you're that. observing it, and you're almost kind of fake creating it. That you're Sometimes, doing it not always. No, I mean, sometimes course, you are just narrating the yeah, good stuff course, that is of happening. Course. But the point you made about sleep becomes really important mm. again because I, I mean, I was ruthless when I was a classroom teacher for getting to bed at 10 a.m., getting up at 10 to 6, and would be really grumpy with people who meant uh, that prevented me from getting to sleep yes. at 10 p.m. Yes. Uh, now I'm a lot more lax with my sleeping hours. But that was because on days when I didn't get a solid eight hour sleep and wake mm. really refreshed mm. with lots of energy, I would slip into natural behavior more frequently yes. than I would the things I was trying to train myself to That's do. That's interesting. And especially for novice teachers when it's not become automated exactly. and routine when you've got to consciously. That's yeah. really interesting. And on, on like the role play thing, which is obviously trying to get you, in, 
to build up these habits before you are live with 30 uh, yes, pairs of eyes staring yeah, yeah. at you. It's not as cringe-inducing as you might imagine. Like, I'm not <laughs> a, a big fan of like, role-play myself. It's not really role-play. And I think they've moved over to the idea of describing it more as practice because it's what it is. So in, instead of um, let's simulate a classroom environment, it would just be these two people are the pupils. They're just going to sit there. And all that's going to happen is God, they're yeah. almost just like a, a mannequin for you to yes. stand up because you would stand up as a teacher and go through the motions. Okay, now we... Um, and, and so you're going to give an instruction. They're going to pick up the pen, start doing something. You're going to thank them. Yes. So you know what you're doing. You're just doing it in advance. And then you can, you can ramp up the difficulty. So next is they're going to not do what you've asked them to do. And you are going to respond in this way. Yes. And then there's a few more steps. And then eventually you can get to a point where um, you don't know how they're going to react. But it'll be one from a number of predetermined situations and then you Got respond it. in the way that you've practiced responding. That's not. And I think the key point from that is that however you do it, there's got to be a middle ground between just thinking that you're going to do something and planning it and then actually doing it live. If you can have some kind of middle yeah. ground, whether it's role play. And when I, when I interviewed John Mason, one of the things he said that I thought was really interesting was to visualize you kind of yes. saying something or asking the questions in your head or, or visualize what's this going to look like. Instead of writing on a lesson plan, I will do a worked example. Or for the next 10 minutes, I will walk around the classroom. What is that actually going to look like? What words are you going to say? And even just, you don't have to act it out, but just take in that moment just to visualize because you don't want it the first time you actually do it to be live when there's a million yeah. other things going on i thought it was yeah really keep on all right well that's brilliant thanks for that and it was a wonderful wonderful session and um, we were both in the same session next weren't we which was um yeah paul i was Kirshner. a bit late to it but <laughs> and paul Kirshner, i'd never met him before and i've still not met him i've seen him and i've kind of nodded at him but i've never met him i'll tell you what he's he's fast becoming one of my favorite presenters yes. he's got a very unique style of presenting he does almost confrontational mm. like because i was sat on the front row with tom sherrington and tom had his phone out ready to tweet and i had my ipad out ready to take <laughs> notes and he straight away a slide comes up no phones no computers i need you listening to what i'm saying and i was like oh geez okay but i kept my ipad out for the good of the listeners because i thought i've got I've got to take some notes here um, and his talk was about myths myth um, urban legends and myths in education so what i'll do i'll i'll run through a couple of these and i'll, I'll say a couple of my thoughts and if you've got anything to add chris mm -hmm. uh, chip in so the first one first big myth was that people can multitask and mm -hmm. in fact I have a question for you that I need you to clear up for me here. Mm. So um, he said that the, the idea that people can multitask comes from the fact that computers can multitask. Mm -hmm. You've got dual and quad processors that can simultaneously deal with two pro completely different processes at the same time with no uh, sufferance of speed or accuracy or anything yeah. like that. But we've only got one brain and our brain doesn't work like a, 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 a computer a processor on a computer. And it's okay if we're doing an activity that we've automated like walking we can probably do something else at the same time <laughs> but if we have to do two cognitively demanding activities yes. we find it very hard to, to multitask and instead what we end up doing is what he called task switching yep. and there is a cost a switching penalty every time you change the cognitive schema that you're accessing to move on to another yep. task and it may only be a small penalty but it adds up over time mm -hmm. but here's my question for you Christopher Bolton and I'm hoping you can answer this how does it because I agree with all that, mm -hmm. but how does interleaving fit in with that? Because it isn't that essentially switching between these schemas. And mm. we know from Bjork's work that, that that's a good thing. So is there a conflict there or not? Well, first, it depends upon 
what kind of inter how we're using the word interleaving yes. because there are there are two ways of using it the way that I first came across which was uh, Jonathan Solity describing what happens in Michelle Thomas's instructional programs was having a single question which demands more than one thing that has been taught right um, so this might be like asking a a question uh, you've given three triangles what is the probability of selecting a triangle with a perimeter less than 30 centimeters and so you need to know a bit about perimeter and maybe depending on which triangles you have um, Pythagoras theorem yes. or properties of an equilateral yes. triangle and probability to be able to answer that question um, the other way that Bjork seems to mean it and most people seem to be understanding it is being given a question on probability which is just about basic probability, and then another question which is just about Pythagoras' theorem. Yes. And so you're switching between different um, uh, yeah, different domains of knowledge, sure. depending on one another. Um, but it depends on how we set this up. For example, you're not going to do that constantly every second while somebody is learning something for the first mm. time. Um, so what are we trying to get out of the process of inter interleaving? First of all, we want to remove any um, spurious cues from the lesson. So if today is a lesson on Pythagoras' theorem, then we run into the problem that we think every single problem can be solved this way. And we don't have to do any kind of systematic search to find what mathematical knowledge do I need sure. to answer a question. If that's your experience for 11 years, and when you come to an exam, and it's not, you know, this is exam number one, and all of the maths you need will be this tiny, tiny thing, um, then you have to, yeah, you have to remember what do I need to do that, what do I need to do that, and you've never had to do that before. So I think that's part of where the the benefit of interleaving in um, in sort of Bjork's research comes from the fact that you're <clears throat> having to think hard about what do I need for this particular problem or to do this particular task, and that's increasing storage strength. But there's an obvious question around how often do you switch. And at what point is that appropriate? So you can see this being built naturally into Siegfried Engelmann's curriculum design. So in what they call the strand curriculum design, they have a series of tracks and these, and you could have um, 30 or 40 or 50 tracks and each one of them is a thing you want students to learn. And then these tracks run over, the, the plan for them is running over 150 or more lessons. And if you take a sort of vertical slice uh, imagine like a table so you've got lots of our rows with all these tracks and then lessons going as the columns if you take yep. a vertical slice down one lesson you will see that um, anything from five to maybe 15 different tracks are represented in this lesson right okay and sometimes it's initial teaching and it'll just be a little bit of initial teaching somewhere at the beginning but very often it's practice we're practicing this thing we did yesterday and the day before that and the thing we've been doing for days on end so depending on which program has been followed uh, it, it might be that a lesson has say let's call it six different tracks in it and there's going to be a tiny bit of new teaching on one of those tracks and that's new and then we're going to practice that now we're going to stop and now we're going to look at another track that we looked at yesterday and we're going to add some fractions we're going to do two together you're going to do four on your own six minutes later whatever it is we're going to stop we're going to look at coordinate systems. Yes. We're going to do that. And that's design, but that, that's going over something that you've seen before and yes, seen before lots okay. of times. And you are going to see again in the very near future. And it's just taking it and extending it further and further and further. Um, I feel like the, the problem of task switching would be like, we've got this big, genuine mathematical problem. Let's say question 22 from the UK Math <laughs> Challenge. So when you get to 21 to 25, I sometimes struggle yeah, with them. Yeah, me too. Um, 
and maybe this is going to take you 40 minutes to solve yep. but every now and then in the middle of it I'm going to ask you to think about different problems as Got well it. but then come back to this yes. that would be running interference on the one big thing you're trying to do yes that makes perfect sense that's a good distinction I like that Chris fantastic um, the next thing uh, he spoke about was the <laughs> the next myth and this is close to my heart, and I write about this in my book. Students can regulate and direct their own learning. Mm. And his point here was that, in fact, only experts can do this. Um, and Paul's big on the distinction between experts and novices. And he says that experts know what they know, they know what they don't know, and they know how to find out what they don't know. Whereas novices can't do that for yeah. many reasons. Dunning-Kruger effect, so they might not even be able to judge what they know and what they don't know. And... Um, I think I write about in my book and I think I got this from what it was linked to from one of uh, Paul's papers but I think it's Clark who, who explains this that actually um, students sometimes choose the wrong type of instruction mm. to suit their needs that you'll get novice learners students who don't know um, and don't have a great amount of knowledge about a specific thing that's being taught they actually prefer the more kind of inquiry based or dis discovery style learning because they can kind of hide away they don't have to show up their lack of knowledge whereas actually experts who would benefit more from that style of teaching actually quite like the direct instruction mm. because again they can kind of show off they can set, set their work out and I've, I've certainly experienced this so I thought that was interesting and, and again just because there's for many years I was under the impression that it was a really good idea to give kids lots of choices yeah. over what they learn and the more I read and the more I think about it and the more work I do with kids the more I'm actually directing students to do what I've planned mm. what's your take I've definitely made that mistake as well I was big on trying to set up these sort of choice scenarios and and menus and <laughs> oh, yes. select different types of things. but I've, I've read that research as well and uh, I think the important that point at the beginning about well, what does an expert know and how do they organize their knowledge and how does that inform their ability Ooh. to make intelligent decisions becomes really important. I've started to reconceptualize independent learning a little bit because I realize I'm constantly trying to learn more stuff. Yes. And then when I think, well, how do I do this? I usually just pick up a book mm. and I read it. Mm. And a book is somebody else's decisions about what I need to know. And they've arranged it in a sequential order yes, that yes, I okay, process from yeah. beginning to end. Now, because I read a lot of them, I eventually am able to you know, form my own opinions and judgments about what I agree and disagree with. Uh, but but if that is... If that is independent learning, and most people would agree that that yes. is independent learning, then um, there's something... There's something about even what we think of as independent learners kind of still needing uh, structure mm. if, we're, if we're learning about things which are new to us. We need structure. We need people who will tell us where to look and tell us what we yes. um, should be learning about. And possibly the only serious distinction to be made between that and a, a, a super independent learner, if you like, are the people who are at the, the cutting edge, the forefront, the people who are synthesizing brand new knowledge people doing phds and uh oh just yeah creating very new things themselves um or but that that involves not just a not just a uh i don't know a synthesis or a summary of these or other people's ideas this is my take on it but you are literally going out there and conducting your own research and learning something yes. new about the world which previously no one in mankind knew about uh, I don't know if that's too lofty a goal, no, but that I, seems like, like true it. independence. And I like that part. I've never thought about that, about books. The fact that, are we going so far as to say that books are essentially kind of almost explicit instruction? It's the fact that somebody, has, are, somebody has planned yeah. out 
the best way for you to follow their argument through. That's good, that Chris. That's, I like that. <laughs> Thank you. That's very good. Again, you may have peaked too soon here. We'll see. We'll see if you still get any insights left. Um, myth number three: We learn according to learning styles. Now, this this has been a regular theme on the podcast, and anyone who's any interest in research will, will have no doubt come across this. But there was one bit. Were you in for this bit? The learning yes, style? I was. I love the bit where he um, said it's not just the fact that there's three learning styles: the yeah. visual, auditory, and kinesthetic. There's loads of them. And the I think it was Cofield. I think I wrote down and um, I identified that there were. 72 dichotomous learning styles and Paul did a nice yeah. bit of maths here that so a pupil either fits one of these learning styles or doesn't so there's essentially 72 yes or no decisions and if you know your maths to work out the number of possible different types of students there are that's 72 to the sorry 2 to the power of 72 which is actually more than the number of people who ever lived so I thought that was a lovely way to just say that the world has had for a while and still is to a lesser extent kind of learning style mad. Um, anything to add on learning styles? I just enjoyed the diagram he put up of uh, done and done or what he <laughs> liked to say, how he liked to put it, dumb and dumber. <laughs> It was mental. Hey, that was like yeah. different amounts of light and different temperatures suiting learning. But uh, anyway, anyway. It's, um, all, it's, it's almost like people are going out there and trying to... I don't know, fight, fight, like desperately trying, we're struggling to see what makes a difference, so we'll just find something, try yes. anything out, and now you stake your career on it. And the thing I've always been frustrated by, well, been frustrated by for a long time with these actually is we spend so much time obsessing, obsessing over how people might be different mm. and then trying to think about how we might cater to that difference, which is a complete impossibility with a, a mass, we have a mass yes. education system. Yes. It has limitations it has finite resources and a single teacher with 30 people in front of them there are genuine limits to what they can do and trying to concoct this into a, a 30 something unique for 30 different individual yes um individual learning styles or personalities is, is just extraordinary it's, it's clearly not going to be efficient and the alternative if you can find ways in which people are similar and and, and speak to that that, that seems to be what we should be searching for, not looking for ways that we can sort of atomize individual yes. people yes. more and more um, and create this sort of insurmountable task. For, I don't know, it, it just feels like when you look at some of the things he was describing, that it was just people in very real ivory towers trying to uh, put something out there that would make other people think that they were impressive because it looks technical and complicated. But then do you see the slide he put on with the kind of percent of people who still believe in stuff like this? Yeah, that, that's I've worrying, that isn't before. it? Hey, like it was in the 90s or high 80s or something like for learning styles. It's I, I run into teachers there, all it? the time who still tell me about how important it is that we differentiate for children's learning styles. I still keep coming across it. Deary me. Anyway, next couple. Uh, brain, uh, brain games make us smarter. Again, I talk about this a little bit um, in the book. The key point here is that um, actually you only get better at the specific thing you've practiced. And I thought a really interesting thing that Paul said was that even if you do a brain game that requires you to remember strings of letters, that doesn't even necessarily transfer across to help you any better at remembering numbers. So even a tiny tweak um, in the uh, kind of way the game's set up doesn't transfer across. So it's certainly not going to improve mm. your ability to solve mathematical problems. The, the whole notion of improving the capacity of your working memory in a general sense, I don't think there's, there's any evidence. 
that's off. Um, next one was uh, we only use 10% of our brain. <laughs> now, that was a good one. I've heard this one. And again, he had quite... Sometimes with these myths, I, I now don't believe them, but I don't have a good convincing way of telling people uh, why I don't. But I thought this, this was quite nice. I like this. And Paul said that there, there are actually there are areas of our brains that have different functions. Yeah. Um, so we do use all the brain, but just never at once. And then he had a really nice argument here to say that the brain uses 20% of the body's energy. So if, in fact, we did only use 10% of it, then it would be advantageous to have a smaller brain and natural selection would have mm. kind of wheedled it out. So I thought that was nice. I think, I don't know if you mentioned this, but I think there's also a, I, I think there might be a distinction between a grey matter and white matter. Oh. And that part of it's neurologically active and the other part isn't. And that um, the, of, the, of the parts that are... I don't know what language he is neurological potentiation or neurologically Jeez. active that of that 100% is used and then ah. the rest isn't used for neural activity but nor could it be it's not its ah, purpose right. something else. Okay. I think I've so read that so it's not as if we've loads of untapped resource that we've exactly got. Got yeah it. got it fantastic um, and the final couple we kids are media wise digital mm -hmm. natives I like this one um, and again this taps into the idea that kids are independent and can discover things for themselves and uh, we've argued on this podcast and in the book and Chris has spoke about this mm -hmm. that kind of knowledge is the key and I like that do you see that ADHD thing here yep. where he changes the H to hyperlink so I thought that was, that was quite a nice one um, and then uh, the final two we had knowledge is perishable as fresh fish so <laughs> the idea that kind of knowledge just you just kind of forget it and, it, and it's, it just disappears and becomes redundant and not used and I love this quote I really like this um, what you know determines what you see not the other way around I mm, thought that was yeah. really nice so your, your existing knowledge determines how you perceive things what you take in I really enjoyed that and the old knowledge in inverted commas is absolutely essential to evaluate and choose new information so I thought that was nice and then the final one and then I'll hand over to you in case you have anything to add Chris is that uh, the final myth it's all on the internet um, the idea that to solve a problem, um, you just look at look it up on Google and, and you're good to go. Yeah. But Paul made the point that actually to solve a problem, uh, you need to do a lot of things um, on the internet. You need to monitor, evaluate, select, filter, all of which requires uh, knowledge. And what I was going to say to you is, hmm. have you ever come across the, um, have, you, have you read Deep Work by Cal Fussman? Oh, sorry, deep, sorry, Deep Work by Cal Newport. I've bought it. I've heard about it. I've not yet read the I, actual original I think text. you'll like. I think you'll like that. I speak about it a little bit um, um, on a podcast with um, Amir Arazu. Yeah. Um and again, just just about getting in the zone for getting in the zone for deep work and yes. creating the conditions for deep work are so important. And um, I'm going off on a slight tangent, but I'll bring it back in a second. And I like to do with this with the kids, um, get them kind of working in silent periods to get them into this uh, this yeah. this conditions for deep work. But I wanted to say that just in case I forgot to say that. But um, it then triggered me to remember something Cal Fussman had said. Now, have you ever come across Cal Fussman? He's a basically he's an interviewer, and um, he did a lot of. Uh, Right, I think he was for Rolling Stone magazine, or I might, I might be getting that completely wrong, but he's interviewed Muhammad Ali, yeah. JFK, all this kind of thing. And he made a really interesting point that this it's all on the internet uh, really jogged my memory. And that's, he says, that now there's so many answers out there. The internet is completely full of answers. Yeah. So having answers isn't the important thing. The important thing is coming up with good questions. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to frame your questions to get at the right answers. And that made me think, again, if we, we just say to kids, well, you can just Google it, what are they typing in? <laughs> what, 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 how are they framing that question to make sure the knowledge, that the information they find is the right one? And I think... 
as we move into this age where information is rife and there's too much information, hmm. it's not having answers that's the important thing. It's being able to ask the right questions. So I thought that that was just kind of my little reflection on that. Any, anything to add on Paul's uh, talk, Chris? Uh, he made the point as well about 21st century skills. Uh, he pointed out that they're, most of them are, are not skills, but traits, the yes. ones that people put out there. And that they're not 21st century. We've, we've always needed them. For example, creativity and, in, and inventiveness. His point, I think, was if we didn't need inventiveness a century or two ago, we wouldn't have electric lighting and we wouldn't have automobiles. That's, yeah, very, very true. It was a great... I really enjoyed the talk. He was great, a great presenter. Now... Thank God I've got you here, Chris, because you're going to help me out with this one. Because you, you actually right. you actually know more about a session that you weren't in, but I was in. Because <laughs> and this is the importance of knowledge, right? It's almost like we're doing yeah. going a bit meta here. Because I went into a session and it was run by Christine Council, who I've have a lot of time for. Um, she write she's a director of education at a multi academy trust in Norfolk, and her talk was on taking curriculum seriously. And having interviewed Dylan uh, William recently and Tom Sherrington, we spoke a lot about curriculum. Everybody seems to be talking about curriculum. Mm. It came up in the the Amanda Spielman's talk uh, yesterday and Michael Wilshaw talked about it as well so I thought this would be a great one for me to go to but I'm going to come out and say it a lot of it was a little bit over my head so I spoke to you and um, we just bumped yeah. into you outside and I said I've been in Christine's session I think it was great people were certainly loving it Tom Sherrington was loving it <laughs> and I said I was out of my depth I was taking notes but I, I don't really fully I didn't follow it and I said I'm thinking of leaving it out of the podcast but you said no we're going to discuss it because you, you, you've heard Christine speak before, you've read her stuff, so you mm. might be able to help. So I'll give you a couple of things that I kind of took away from it, and then you, you, you jump in and help me out here, Chris, if that's all right. Sure. So a point, seemed, uh, a point that Christine seemed to be making, which I, I certainly understood and agreed with, was that it's probably not right for senior leaders to leave all curriculum decisions to individual departments and yeah. heads of department. And that, in fact, it's a key role of senior uh, curriculum leadership to understand intimately um, what's going on in each of the curriculums that are being studied. So your maths, your English and science. But of course, the problem with that is um, subjects are very different. And mm -hmm. how on earth is a senior leader going to be a master of 15 different subjects? Mm -hmm. But if they're not, <clears throat> then we have this problem that Tom Sherrington spoke about and we spoke about on the podcast yesterday, that... How on earth do they interpret data? How yeah. because with with kind of math departments aggregating things, English departments, how do you compare? How do you identify good practice? How do you understand when a head of department says, "No, actually, don't panic about this apparent dip in performance. Mm. It's actually because of this reason and this reason." So it's very important for senior leaders to have a better understanding of all the different curriculums that are happening. But it's very difficult for them to do. So Christine said, the best way that SLT can do this is by asking head of departments the right questions. And we come back to Cal Fussman's point about asking the right questions again. So I jotted down a few of these questions. Um, but this is where, as I was following it up to this point, I thought I'm doing really well here. But this is where I started losing. Right. So this is where you're coming in, Chris. So the first thing that senior leadership should ask uh, head of departments about is about the indirect manifestation of knowledge. Now, what do you take this to mean? Right, so I think, if I've understood it correctly, this one is about the distinction between uh, the domain of knowledge that an exam like a GCSE or A-level is supposed to be assessing uh, your, your awareness of, your knowledge of, uh, versus the sample that it will take in order to infer that knowledge. So, w without being aware of, of that distinction, 
if you just look at the exam papers and you look at what they keep, which parts, which samples they keep taking from the domain year after year, you can reach a point where the sample becomes all that you teach. And so there's this much bigger domain that you're supposed to be teaching and we don't because we are kind of a little bit unaware of it ourselves or we get overly focused on the exam and just what's needed to write down the paper to maybe pick up some marks. Um, so it's, and I think this might relate to a, a conversation that we sometimes had at Uplearn where with the maths course for example that I wrote last year we have uh, so, so part of what we're trying to do is make sure that students have everything they need for their exam, for their A-level exam, and just what they need for their A-level exam. But we, we, get, we run into some interesting questions. So by that I mean we don't go off into lots of interesting tangents, which are interesting to us because we know a lot about maths, but aren't directly relevant to a whole bunch of very sort of anxious uh, students who really just want to do one of their exams. Yes. But then we, we run into some interesting cases. Uh, one that we keep coming back to is the idea of, do we have a section on limits, mathematical limits? Yep. And one, uh, one way of looking at this would be no. And we don't need to worry about them or we can cover them very briefly because they're never assessed in the exam directly. So you'll never be asked, uh, what is a limit? Yes. And you, it's probably unlikely you'll be asked something like, what is the limit of, of, of something else? Um, and where they crop up most often in calculus, you can differentiate and integrate without having to really understand what it is you're doing. Yeah. Just follow the processes you've been given. But <clears throat> we, we opted to put in a, a whole section going into detail about what limits are because we thought, well, first of all, when we come to our calculus sections, if you don't have that, then we can only really cover them in a very, very superficial way. And we were worried that we would engender confusion as we moved through describing what we're doing and why. And then also, the exam papers can put anything they want technically into yes. an exam question. And um, I mean, there was a question I saw from an old C3 paper recently where uh, you're asked to show it's got this sort of interesting sort of almost sort of S-shaped function which supposedly models some sort of population growth. It's clearly got an asymptote at about 270 and given the function which is something like summing e to the x over 1, 800 e to the x over 1 plus something e to the x I think, uh, 3 e to the x or something, you're, you're asked to show um, that it's true that the population will never grow past 270. Right, okay. And again you don't really need to know anything about limits in order to show that but knowing something about limits made that question so much easier to yes. interpret and understand so I would argue that even though the question isn't directly about limits um, and you could answer it without that knowledge knowing it makes it much easier for you to make sense of it that's a sort of that would be an in I think an indirect manifestation of knowledge so a little bit like you said earlier uh, our knowledge dictates how we see the world our, our world is constructed almost from the things we know um, we're going to we should be teaching the curriculum and the domain of knowledge that we think we should be teaching, and then we should be expect we should expect to see uh, that knowledge content manifest indirectly in how we're able to respond to questions on the exam papers God. instead of going the other way. So some curriculum first, and then let's just make sure that's going to manifest in the exams rather than actually doing what some people do and trying to backwards plan. Start with the 
assessment and then just think, oh, this is all they need to know. Yes. And we'll just give them a few stock phrases to write down that'll take off marks in the mark scheme. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. No, I hope thank that's you. right. Yeah. And if not, Christine Council, please write in <laughs> and let us know. Um, I'll give you a couple more of these, Chris, sure. that's all right. So the next question that she said that SLT should be asking head of the department is, is the subject being treated as cumulative mm-hmm. or hierarchical? Okay, I think that one's a bit more straightforward. Mathematics is hierarchical. And that means there are certain things we have to teach before we can teach other things. We cannot teach solving a pair of simultaneous equations before we've taught um, solving a simple linear equation. Yes. Whereas a subject like history is not hierarchical. Uh, You could argue for chronology, but the reality is you can learn about the Battle of Waterloo or Nazi Germany before you know anything about the the Roman Empire or... um, I was going to say... um, uh, Tudor Britain, but of course that comes after the Battle of Waterloo. But regardless, you can learn about the Nazis before you learn <laughs> yeah. about that. Uh, and so th- there isn't a hierarchy in the same way. There isn't a sense of you must do this before you can teach that. And, and so instead, it is it's cumulative. You are just accumulating more and more knowledge, and then over time, that knowledge will hopefully um, begin to interact uh, with itself, especially if teachers draw that out. But there's not a clear hierarchy in the same way. So science tends to be a bit more hierarchical. Yes. Uh, languages like MFL can be a bit more hierarchical, whereas humanities and uh, English tend not to be. And what, what's the implication there? The SLT should make sure that head of departments for a subject like mm. maths have thought carefully about the structure and order that they're teaching things. Is that the key implication? Yeah, I think, we, well, I think we've, got, we've got two. I mean, that's one. For the hierarchical ones, absolutely. Being aware of the existence of the hierarchy and, um, and leveraging that would mm. be very important. Um, but also for the other subjects, being aware that you are non-hierarchical makes sense of the fact that your job in deciding what to include is really hard. Yes. And so yes. you have to have um, a very you you have to at least uh, know that you have thought deeply about why you are making the decisions you're making about what to include, and importantly, what you are choosing because this is an active choice, even if you don't realise it, to exclude. Yes. That makes perfect sense. Thank you. Oh, well, you're on a roll here, Chris. I'm, I'm glad <laughs> I've got you here for this. Number three, uh, so the third question that SLT may ask a head of department is, is this disciplinary or mm. substantive, yeah. substantive knowledge? Oh, and uh, full marks, much gratitude to Christine Cancel and Michael Fordham for helping me make sense of this one. Oh, so perfect. I, oh, this is I, I learned it uh, from them and their writing. Um, and I think it's an incredibly important distinction. Um, some of the subjects we teach are disciplines and some of them aren't. For example, MFL in schools, I think, isn't a discipline, whereas mathematics, the sciences, uh, the humanities certainly are. I'm not really sure about English. I've never been sure about how to make sense of it. Um, And the distinction is between uh, what we teach and and so what we... In fact, I think this came up yesterday as well. So this is that distinction between uh, what we know. So what mathematical uh, truths have we uncovered? What theorems and what the bits and pieces do we know? What do we know about the natural world? thanks to science what do we know about the past thanks to history and when we're saying thanks to mathematics thanks to science thanks to history uh, kind of thanks to the uh, actions of people who are historians and scientists and mathematicians and then you get into well well thanks to what what did they do how did they acquire that knowledge and that is through some sort of disciplinary activity so this is the uh, scientists conducting investigations yes, and experiments yes, and mathematicians okay. performing investigations and stuff and the historians doing all the wonderful things that historians do so um, I don't think all the subjects are disciplines but those that are be clear on what it is you're trying to teach so for example if you're uh, a science teacher and you're teaching something about experimental um, 
experiments or the experimental process or the scientific method, what you are trying to teach now is disciplinary knowledge. Mm. This is what uh, people who are going to be practitioners in discipline need to know, but to be experts in it, they need to have loads of that substantive content that we talked about before. You can't just teach the discipline and boom, we have little historians and little scientists. Um, But then at the point we made yesterday is to what extent do we want to include some of that so we have an awareness of how these people do operate got it it's very impressive this chris i like this now the, the next two <laughs> I, yeah I, I haven't asked you these so ho- hopefully you've got it but it's not a problem if you if you don't have a take on these sure um how has the academic discipline been recontextualized in the school sure. context um i don't know what Christine meant, because I wasn't there today, but the way I interpret that, just hearing it and knowing what I've said before, would be, it it would be wrong to go into a history classroom and say, you are all historians, because they're not. Wrong to go into a science classroom and start by saying you are all scientists, because they're not. And even if we are going to get into trying to convey some of the, the that disciplinary knowledge and having children even practice it out, doing some kind of source analysis. I'm not a history teacher, don't know whether that's a good use of time or not, but if it were, there's a need to recognise that they're not real historians mm. in an academy mm. conducting real historical analysis. Mm. There are going to be extraordinarily severe limitations on what they can do because of the lack of substantive knowledge in contrast. And also, it's not just the quantity, it's how the knowledge is organised. And Paul Kirshner showed us a compelling fMRI scan of the brain <laughs> earlier that showed conclusively that the way um, the brain is activated in experts is distinct from that of novices. It's not just the amount of knowledge, it's how it's organised. And so if we are going to communicate or get um, pupils involved in some sort of disciplinary activity, we probably need to recognise that what that's going to look like in a school is going to look very different from what it looks like in the academies, yes. in the universities. And, and so that's how I've interpreted that sentence. Like, How are we recontextualising what they do so that it's now appropriate for a school setting? Got it. Perfect. And then the final one was intelligent interdisciplinary <laughs> versus cr- crazy cross-curricular. Intelligent interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary. It's a tricky one versus say. crazy yeah. cross-curricular. Okay, so I'm not... I, do you know what? I think I've seen a blog post come up just a few days ago which was on this very topic and I didn't read it, so now I'm kicking myself. <laughs> um, I, I assume that the crazy cross-curricular is what we've had historically. Um, it, it, the real world is not does not exist in subject silos therefore schools should not exist yeah. in subject silos so let's start counting the number of words that are in your uh, the book that you're reading in English and draw a graph of it because that's like maths isn't yes, it yes yes um, I, I assume it's just doing these things for the sake of it rather than well, rather than what? I don't know. That's People will thing, have to yeah. go out and read the blog post so I'm going to have to read it now yeah because it, it almost feels like there is something that could work but it's definitely not that i i would love to hear what it is because i've um been going hard down the line of largely just yeah a straight up subject so i mean i suppose a, a distinction i would draw is where we're using mathematics in, in maths it's good to acknowledge how that's used in say physics or yes. vice versa that would make sense um but i beyond that i don't know what christine intended but if there's a way to make this work that is is sensible and, and is effective and I'm probably all for it. Sounds good. Now, I'll just very quickly do this last one, and then I'm going to hand over to you, Chris, because you actually sure. ran a session yourself, and then we were both in the final session. So um, the one I'm just going to talk about briefly um, is, and I'm going to ha- actually get a bit of uh, advice from you on how to say his surname, Pedro de... What are you going for here? 
Is it Bukier? Yeah, I'm going yeah. Bukier. Yeah, let's go with that. Let's go with that. Um, he's, he's Belgian um, and he's, again, a brilliant presenter. Really energetic, funny, engaging. Um, and what I liked about it, it was very much preaching to the choir in terms of, uh, of me anyway, because his session was called The Ingredients for Great Teaching. And actually, Chris, it followed a lot of what we were talking about yesterday, because Pedro was focusing on, a, on safe bets, things that are right. probably going to be effective um, in lessons. So um, he spoke about the working memory is a bottleneck and the key to teaching is getting something through that bottleneck. And he essentially outlined four, four things that are, are probably going to be a safe bet for doing that. So the first is prior knowledge. And he spoke a lot about direct instruction versus inquiry learning. But he also spoke about um, the fact that we need to move people towards uh, less guided instruction mm. as their knowledge levels grow. We spoke about that lots on the podcast. I bang on about it in my book. Uh, the second way to kind of remove this bottleneck is... Um, Oh God, there's too many words I can't say it. Automatization. I really struggle with that one. Um, so again, getting processes automated so that students can think about more complex problems that involve those processes. Um, space repetition. And then perhaps the one that we didn't speak about yesterday, uh, mm. dual coding. Mm. And um, I was lucky enough to see, in fact, we both saw, didn't we, um, Oliver... Uh, Caviglioli. Thank for digging me out of that one. At uh, Research Head Rugby, and he's big into dual coding. Could you just um, give a little bit of... What's your take on dual coding? Can you give a little bit of a summary for, for listeners who may not be aware of it? As I understand it, it, it's often communicated as having diagrams, or something visual, and then you are... Um, offering a verbal explanation as well of the diagram and, and so you so while the learning styles thing is nonsense what we do have is that uh, two components of working memory the visual spatial sketch pad and the phonological loop which are i think independently uh, used to process uh, verbal information which includes when we read text yes and um stuff we see basically and because we have these dual channels which can operate independently we can process both those kinds of information at the same time so if somebody puts loads of writing on a screen and starts talking at the same time as the writing that's problematic because you need the phonological loop to do the reading and the listening and you can't do both and then you're just really annoyed with the speaker but if you've got a diagram and the person speaking you can process both at the same time now why this is good is is a tricky one for me Um, i know that it's it is widely accepted that this is useful, that this is effective, but when you get into the, the why, I don't know how much of the words are just becoming a bit made up. Uh, and this does happen in the research, right? So you, you can observe um, our actions, our inputs. We can observe the outputs, the effects. And we have this in all the sciences, including physics, and we can just say, like, these two things are not only correlated, but there's a causal link. Mm. We can do that. So, But then, like, what is it? So even if you take the famous E equals MC squared. We know that to be true. We know that relationship to be true. But then you get people asking, but what's it mean? Mm. Does that mean that like matter is frozen energy or is it something? And we struggle to conceptualize it in a way that makes sense to us what it means, but we still know the link's true. So we know the, the, the link between dual coding and uh, student outcomes is good in some cases. Uh, the reason why it's often explained is because you're making use of both channels or because you're encoding the information in two different ways at the same time which aids future retrieval yeah I don't know 
how accurate that is, but I guess it helps us to make sense of it. And it, to some extent, doesn't matter, provided we at least know that this way. And also, like when this is a useful thing to do, because I don't mm. think that means what you then don't want is people trying to turn everything into images and diagrams yeah, all never the time, text on the screen, and it, stuff. Yeah. Exactly, or never having people read things. Or yes. so it, 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 useful, but. I'm not 100%. For now, I just use my gut. and I don't know how to communicate when I personally think the, uh, the, the, the sort of boundary conditions on this lie as well. That's interesting. It ties in with cognitive load theory, with redundancy yeah. effects and all that kind of thing. That's fascinating. Right, uh, Chris. So you, you ran a session, didn't you, uh, yourself? So do you want to talk a little bit about that? And then we'll talk about the final session that we saw. I did. Are you? Oh, yeah. now listeners, Chris then has very kindly sent me a subtle signal um, to say that I've completely forgotten to speak about one of the sessions. Thank and I just think that this is such a great program as oh, well that it deserves airtime, especially. That, that was brilliant. And it, yeah, thank you for that, mate. Uh, it was a lunchtime session, this, and that's why it's kind of out of my head. It's almost like a bonus session. Um, <laughs> and it was a thinking reading, um, a session by James and Diane Murphy, who got, got the book Thinking Reading. And I'll tell you what, this is fascinating. Um, one of my aims for, well, yeah, I've got, a, I've got too many aims for, the, for this next academic year. But one of them is to, is to understand more about literacy and reading. Because the, the point that James and Diane made, and I've got, I've got a copy, copy of the book at home, but I've not got a chance to, to read it just yet, is that reading underpins success in all subjects. And James is coming at this from a secondary uh, teaching perspective, Diane from, from primary school. Um, and the... They told stories of students who were chronically failing in all different subjects. And then whenever they had some reading intervention, very specific type of intervention that I'll talk about in a second, it not only led to ridiculously, ridiculously large jumps in their years of reading levels within months. So like Diane was talking about kids who jumped seven years of reading levels within six months. But it didn't just improve their reading. All of a sudden, maths was going up, science was going up, confidence was going up. And it made me think, those uh, listeners who've uh, listened to my interview with Graham Cumming about this year's uh, EdXL, one of the criticisms about the EdXL Maths Foundation GCSE paper was that the reading level required was much higher than the maths level required for some of the questions. So you're getting kids who are essentially being punished mathematically because their reading wasn't up to scratch. And it just made me think it's such an obvious point, but if kids can't read uh, sufficiently, then they probably, certainly uh, in subjects like history and English, it's going to affect them. But even in subjects such as maths, it's, it's going to affect them. So they made the point that poor reading affects academic levels, it affects cognitive levels, but I thought this was interesting as well, behavioural levels. Oh, yeah. And if you look, uh, if you go into a school and you ask to see a list of the worst readers in a year, and then you compare that with the worst behaved kids yeah. in a year, there tends to be a really strong correlation between the two. And of course, there are exceptions. But uh, Diane made the point that would you behave well yourself if you were just continually being frustrated that you couldn't yeah. access the content of the lesson? As I'm listening to this, I thought, flipping it, this is this yeah. is big. This is this is really, really serious. There were some frightening stats. Six million uh, adults in the UK are functionally illiterate. Um, and if all children were taught to read, um, then uh, the study that James showed suggests that we'd actually get back the entire UK school budget. Which wow. I was like, bloody hell. Um, there's lots of false assumptions about why kids can't read. Uh, low ability and low IQ. Uh, Diane quoted uh, studies and anecdotes to, of, of different students that she worked with to show that that's not true. Mm. These kids that once they go through this reading program, they, they just catch up so fast and 
kids are at university and doing wonderful things. And I found this this was quite interesting. There's very little evidence that uh, kids can kids reading can improve by getting different lenses on their glasses or printing out things in different colour paper. And it's one of those things I've just always assumed there must be a reason for that. But it turns out it's an incredibly expensive and very very little evidence. Yep. And um, it doesn't help kids track words. Tracking is a teachable skill that you can do without without these costly interventions. Um, and motivation was an interesting one and they just made the point and I, I banged on about this and I know not a lot of people agree with me on this but I, I think you do Chris that um, it works the other way around you don't motivate kids to get good at reading you get kids good at reading and then the and motivation it's motivating comes 100%, yeah. Um, and yeah they, they spoke about and this it, this is where it lost me a little bit and uh, their different approaches to teaching reading apparently a very common one is you go from meaning to decoding so you start with what does the word mean and then you start decoding mm. it. And the interesting thing about that is that works for quite a few students, but there is a big chunk of kids who that doesn't yeah. work for. And then the assumption becomes that they're actually poor readers or low ability yeah. students. And it's actually, it's just the model that they've been taught doesn't work. Whereas what James and Diane, their approach they favor is the other way around, decoding to meaning. And they, they believe yeah. that this this works uh, for, for vastly greater numbers of students. Um, and yeah, it just carried on like this. And um, the final bit, and I, I, I had to shoot off, and I wish um, uh, there was no time for questions at the end, and I wish they'd dug into this, but I, again, I'll, I'll get your take on this now, Chris. Sure. Um, they said that um, we as teachers of different subjects, we have a responsibility to help our kids get good at reading. We, we can't just leave it to intervention or English lessons yeah. and so on. Um, and, they said, and they said, well, what sh I was thinking, well, what should I do as a maths teacher? And James said, the worst thing that you can do is not give kids things to read hmm. because by just not enabling them to practice is just going to get them worse and worse and lead to greater inequality. And James said we need to give them short bursts of reading practice. Hmm. But I'm going to hand over to you now, Chris. <coughs> have you, have you, has this ever been a consideration for you? Have you encountered kids who struggle with reading? And have you any strategies or, or thoughts for how we get kids better at it? Because it's a, it's a problem, yeah. isn't it? it? It certainly is. And as a classroom teacher, it's not really something uh, I could say that I engaged with fully. Mm. But as a form tutor, sometimes when I saw the, the like, a written cover letter or CV that uh, kids <laughs> yeah. in my form were producing, and I finally got to see what their writing looked like, it was um, and I was qu really quite shocked as well by that because I, I, I didn't see it as a maths teacher um, <clears throat> I think I'd be somewhat anxious about uh, sort of forcing things in where it's not appropriate one thing I know that they do at Michaela Community School though is in every single lesson including mathematics there is a small period of uh, mm. reading so there's a small paragraph of text in the, in the booklets for every lesson where they'll um, read something and I, I suppose this is what they're trying to do and I think it's just in maths it's maybe just a couple of hundred words yep. I'm not sure how instructionally successful it will be because yes. uh, I'm not certain that that mode of presenting the new information is going to be the, the most successful way of doing it um, but at least it's there yeah. and, at least it's, and I, think that, I think that their argument for it is we want them reading in every single lesson all the time yes. for exactly the reasons that um, James and Diane have, have put out there yeah, it's, again, it's just one of those things. It's, it's just made me think more about yeah. it, and I, um, I'm pleased to say Alex Quigley, who I bumped into yesterday, he's going to come on the podcast because he's Amazing. a wonderful book out uh, about closing the vocabulary gap. Right, we can put it off no longer, Chris. Over to your session. So, what was this about? Sure. So, I, I, I mean, this was uh, unlike yesterday. This was just a bit of a, 
a thought piece, something that was on my mind. And I think sometimes with with Wellington in the past, it, it does provide a bit of a a platform to just put ideas out there in a way that I, th- I sometimes think other events are much more about CBD and training. Yes. So this was one of those for me. And while yesterday I'd been talking about uh, direct instruction and this principle of 100% of children can succeed, and you know there are quotes from um, Siegfried Engelman that I've used in the past, when students do not succeed in school, academic Kant holds it that it is the child who has failed never the system or the instructional program or the teacher. Yes. So again, a, a real belief in the, the capacity of the, the child and the student to learn and um, a readiness to criticise, if you want to depersonalise it, the teaching when they mm. failed. Um, but it's kind of all well and good to believe that when you have this fantastic strategy for guaranteeing that everyone will learn. If, if you don't have that as a teacher, so if it's not the child's fault they haven't learned, learned and it is the fault of the teaching, but you were the teacher, is it your fault or is it some yeah. other this is kind of what it was about so entitled it whose fault is it anyway and it was just a bit of a an exploration of where does responsibility lie and it was partly um it was partly uh, came to my mind because i went into teaching believing fully that i want to take responsibility for my student's success and i want to be held accountable when they fail uh, it's because that, that should be my fault and there should be something i can do about it I still kind of believe that or want to believe it, but experience also taught me that um, it can be... Sometimes it's difficult to take ownership because they've had so many teachers before Mm -hmm. you or there were so many other problems happening around the school or they're not turning up. Um, And also then I saw a culture where one year 11 child at a school that I was at was saying to a teacher, it's your job to get me a C grade. (laughs) <laughs> well something's gone completely wrong there where we've taken so much responsibility yes. for your success that you've now abdicated your personal responsibility yes. um, so what I ended up doing was setting out um, uh, so first of all just saying kind of we need to acknowledge there is a, it, it's both people it is the teacher and it is the student yeah. first of all and there's a, a delicate balance between the two and a delicate um, sort of relationship and set of responsibilities for them both so what is the pupil responsibility to uh, turn up to pay attention and to follow teacher directions and if they do all those things then it is unequivocally not their fault if things go wrong yes. they have been failed by someone there's yes. another interesting question if a student fails an exam did they fail the exam or did were, were they, have they been failed? Like, mm. Has the exam revealed that they have been failed? Sure. Um, so when you were saying earlier, as uh, Diane was stating, now how would you feel if you were being frustrated time and again? How would you behave? Granted, however, I'm not sure we can allow for that excuse. Mm. I'm, I'm sure there's a space for some sort of conversation about how uh, pupils are feeling in lessons somewhere to be made, but they nevertheless need to keep turning up and paying attention sure. and um, uh, following directions for them to have fulfilled their part of the contract. So now what can we hold teachers responsible for? Um, certainly for, for turning up and trying to do some teaching. And then I, I compare the difference between process-orientated and objective-orientated mindset. If you're process-orientated, you might just think about, like, you just obsess about the process and mm-hmm. you just, you know, I've executed the process, mm-hmm. therefore you know, there's nothing more I can do. Whereas I think we do have to be objective orientated. We have to say the job is not to turn up and execute the process. It's to uh, achieve the objective, which is students have learned. Yes. And we have to evaluate whether that's happened. And when it hasn't happened, we have to hold ourselves responsible for that, make changes, try different things, give it another go, never give up, give up, keep trying. Um, But then this is kind of probably the important bit because that's probably all we can hold 
teachers mm-hmm. accountable for. Yeah. We probably can't hold, and we and ourselves, like, we probably can't hold ourselves accountable for that ultimate grade or ultimate result because now we've got all these different outside influences. Like for the for the people, what's going on at home, peers, their prior teaching, their prior knowledge. For us, there's the school system in which we operate and its culture, uh, whether or not it's uh, got the the tough discipline that Amanda was saying that Ofsted would back or whether mm. there was indiscipline rampant anywhere, mm. whether it has the positive normative culture that Tom mm. Bennett was talking about yep. or not. And, you know, as, as an individual teacher, you can't do much about that. That's a whole school thing which has to come from the senior leadership, in particular the head teacher. But there's also what we've been told about how to teach. Yes. And if we haven't been told any of these wonderful things that uh, direct instruction pr- practitioners are engaging in, then how can we possibly be held to account when we haven't achieved this 100% success. If we haven't been told how to do it, how can that be our responsibility? Especially when the ideas are out there. So I I did also say I think we need initial teacher training provision to up its game. I think that it needs to... um, I I think that people who are involved in it need to be really brushing up on their cognitive science and direct instruction and sharing this knowledge with new teachers. And this this comes back to your point from yesterday that it's not Ofsted's job to insist upon this. You'd rather do it from the ground upwards. I think it's necessary and I'm so enthusiastic and excited about what the Institute for Teaching are doing with Matt Hood, Nick Rose, uh, Harry Fletcherwood, Peps McRae because I think they're doing this. They are definitely doing this and that's exciting. And, And I think what needs to stem from that is a codified body of knowledge. We need to have a baseline level of knowledge that um, all uh, teachers are entitled to have and should expect to have and also be held to account against, mm. be assessed against. Because once you've got this shared body of uh, knowledge, we're then able to better uh, have greater ownership over our profession and start engaging in a... Uh, would be able to go turn up to CBD or workshops and recognise whether this is nonsense and adding no value. And people who do that consistently would eventually stop being able to use that as their career Um, whereas now they can do it because our sort of shared knowledge base is so thin we're we're struggling to see what's good and what's not and so we it's almost like butterflies flitting from one nice idea to the next so I think we need something codified this is part of the system and that goes into ongoing professional development Mm -hmm. as well Uh, Laura had made the point yesterday Laura McInerney about um, this deep fried Mars bar curriculum and uh, whether or not we said teacher workload is too great but how much of it is self-generated but how much of that, it, granted self-generated, but because we've created uh, an oxygen that we all breathe, which tells us we are uniquely responsible mm. children don't fail. Therefore, we do more work than we can reasonably be held account, to account against. Uh, and So yes, self-generated, but because of the wrong reasons. So there's this big systemic shift that I think needs to, to happen. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, that was, was what I was coming down to. I think we can hold pupils to account for at least those three things and there aren't, can't be any excuses against that because look, you don't do those three things you're not going to learn yes. and there's nothing we can do if you don't do those three things you're not going to learn um, for teachers, I think we can again hold ourselves to account against those processes but providing we are doing that we can't, uh, we can't blame ourselves when then students are not successful that's not going to be uniquely our fault and I guess the parents have a role to play in supporting the kids do those three things just as the school would have a role to play in helping the teachers carry oh, out those absolutely, things. Oh, absolutely, 100%. Um, but again, as teachers and the schools and as the education sector, there's a limited amount that we yeah, can do of course. to influence parents. And yeah. then, you know, this is, becomes a bigger social yeah, question, yeah, right? Yeah, and there are other course. institutions set up to try to handle that. 
Um, so for me, this is a lot about you know what can we hold ourselves to account mm. for, and what should we be holding pupils to account for as well? And then what should those of us who are trying to engage in the wider system? Uh, what are our responsibilities and obligations, and um, uh, what do we need to do to meet them that we're not currently doing? Which I think is a lot. Yeah, sounds a great session, that Chris. That sounds fascinating. Thank you. Uh, which brings us to the final session of the day. Now we were both in this one, and the, the reason I chose it was. I'm a little bit obsessed with differentiation. So this was the ultimate guide to differentiation by Sue Cowley. Sue, uh, mm. a popular a person on Twitter. She's written 30 books. Um, she's used to be a primary school teacher, um, still hev heavily active now, does kind of teacher training and, and, and uh, lots of insets and lots of presenting and, and lots of writing. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a, a, based, uh, a presentation based on her book. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll hand over to you first, Chris. What was your sure. take? Um, I'm just I'm gonna, trying to sort of play back uh, what we saw. So I think Sue said that differentiation starts with the people in front of you, starts with the learners. Um, she asked us uh, to spend some time discussing with the people around us a place that means something to us. Um, me and the person next to me both um, struggled a little bit through this <laughs> yeah, conversation, but you know, three or four minutes later we stopped that and... Um, and then um, Sue was talking about interests, and then she asked us to discuss again with the person next to us uh, what our interests were. I was very boring and said education, and <laughs> Did you? We, we, we agreed that I probably wasn't allowed to say that, but um, <laughs> do obsess a little bit over it. We, we eventually got into what I like reading, and then it turned out that I read about education most of the time. Um, but yeah, we spent another sort of three or four minutes on that. And um, so we made the point that obviously we all, we're all different, we have different interests, and um, children likewise have different obsessions and interests, and that we tend to push them aside when we could be building them. Um, she gave an example of a, a geography teacher that her, her own child had who thought that, uh, she, her child thought that her geography teacher was magical, because, or magic, I think, because um, she'd uh, pointed out when they were learning about countries and cities and different continents that she'd been to, I think it was Latin America, South America, yeah, um, right. sometime, and uh, noted that this was because she taught her older brother and held on to that information and then and, and used it as a, at an appropriate time. And then she kind of uh, said, I think we're getting to about 20, 25 minutes in now, said basically this is this is differentiation to me. So she said... Um, Just on, on that, Chris, I'll tell you what hmm. I was running through my mind with this. With, with I'm all for taking kids' interests and, and, and learning about them and trying to utilise that. Hmm. And I should say at this point that one thing Dylan William, the point he's made when I've interviewed him twice now, is that relationships are, are one of the keys to learning. If you don't have a good relationship with your kids, you're going to really, mm. really struggle. He, mm. he, he keeps going on about that, which, I, again, I find interesting for Dylan, who will be so kind of engaged in research and interested in, in cognitive science and formative yeah. assessments to come back to the relationships. I thought that was interesting. But um, I wrote about this in my book, but um, are you aware of that, that Joe Bowler paper about um, when girls prefer football to fashion? Have you seen that one? I, I do, but I can't recall the details. It's, it's interesting, this, and it's one of my favourite papers because the point, and I, I always mess this up when I explain this, so we'll see how this comes out. Um, Joe makes the point in it that um, it's a study where you give girls problems set in the context of fashion. Is it, I think it's like from like the early 90s, 80s. Yes, I, I remember this. And now. then uh, same same mathematical problems, but in the context of football. Yeah. And they do far better on the football ones and the fashion yeah. ones. And a point here is uh, that the wider point that the danger of trying to appeal to kids' interests is that they actually bring in some real world knowledge from the thing that they're interested yes. in into the maths classroom, which actually makes them perform 
problem worse on the simplified version of a problem that yeah. you're giving them. So I, that was just running through my mind that, that there is, it's not always, it's not a guaranteed win if you can make lessons appeal to, to kids' interests, if that makes sense. No, I, yeah, I, I do wonder sometimes if that's just the, the wrong starting point. It's not that often that I agree with Joe Bowler, but that seems yeah. like a perfectly, <laughs> perfectly valid point. And, um, I, and, and in a similar way, some of what was being described did just sound to me like um, normal human interaction. If you're mm. if you're not some, something inhuman, you are naturally going to develop some yes. kind of relationship with the people yes. you teach. You're naturally going to get to know something about them. You're naturally going to interact with them in that way. That's kind of just what human beings do. I'm not sure. For, for me as a teacher, thinking about teaching, I'm not sure mm. what it added. Uh, so even like the, the geography teacher anecdote, it... It left me thinking because I, I like to think about cognitive biases and what do we see and what do we miss. Um, so okay, so I have co maybe I've just coincidentally retained that information. Yeah. I've not gone out of my way yeah. to note it down and hold it down for three years so that when this moment comes up, I can make this point to this new student I have. Instead, it's just coincidentally, you know what? I've held on to that and oh by the way, yeah, you you know this, you've been there, right? Haven't you? Um, and what about all the other things that she's learned or heard about the different kids she teaches has completely forgotten and not yep. made use of? Yeah, yep. that, that, again, that's just normal human interaction. I, so, I, I, so I'm not really sure, for me, what that added in terms of differentiation. I, I mean, Sue did say, um, she said, uh, wait, wait, look at this. Right, she did say it's not about having lots of different worksheets. It's yep. not about all will, most should, some yes, might. Yes. And I couldn't agree more with that. Um, but I'm not really sure what the the new stuff was that was added for me. She, she said something about her um, child coming home and complaining that she's not learning anything new. And uh, she was wondering, well, yes, but you're learning new skills. And like, we kind of know that's not exactly how it works necessarily um, but the point with this was she's not learning new knowledge and that's frustrating for her child and so we need to start with like what they know rather than just sticking to what we've got because that was the plan and I'm sort of I'm sympathetic to that uh, what's what's his name Nuttall um, yep. Graham Nuttall yep. Graham Nuttall uh, makes the point that uh, within a, any given class I think he's working in sort of middle schools in America as well um, 40% of what's about to be taught will already be known by the class, but it's a different 40% right. for each child. Right. But then that also makes me just think, well, like, I, what, what do you do with that? Like, yeah. How do you structurally deal with this? Yes. I, I almost think I'd rather, A, make sure you're trying to include stuff beyond what they might have heard mm, elsewhere. I mean, ideally, yes. that is what a school should be doing. Yes. I think this is a big part of the argument in favor of having um you know you go to school to study sort of classical or canonical texts mm. because yeah guess what they're not the stuff that mm. you're necessarily going to learn about from home um but then even where there's going to be some kind of overlap just for me for me with with my kids it was just like let's have a culture of acknowledging that some of you know some of this of already course. for various yeah, yeah, reasons yeah, yeah. um and i'm going to try to make sure there's always more in here that you don't know of or yes. i'm going to test you and challenge you in ways uh, through the worksheets that, that you know you're going to be able to get to uh, in, in ways that you haven't been before and just trying to have all of that in there um just just on that as well for me the kind of the kind of relationship part for me came in two ways mm. so i would i would form good relationships with my kids i don't know if this makes sense but firstly by i hope 
making them feel successful about their learning. That was important because that made them happier, that made them more motivated to achieve. But where I would take an interest in their kind of wider lives and stuff, that would be separate from the kind of teaching aspect. So mm. that would be the conversations I would be having when the kids were coming in or as I'm wandering around or when I see them yeah. break. I think there's a danger if we try and bring that into their actual instruction I don't know how useful that is. I would rather separate the two, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, and I and I might be prepared to say, um, uh, maybe Sue's mostly talking about primary, which is yes, working most possibly, of her experiences. Possibly. But then I think I mean, she did also say she had some experience in secondary school. But also I think about people like uh, John Brunskill, who very often will say, "No, actually, you know what? It is it is the same in primary. Ooh. They're um, they're, they're not." adults when they come to us in secondary school they're not yes. adults when they in primary school and um while there might be some particular differences especially how you're sort of considering uh, developmental aspects when you're dealing with sort of four sure. three-year-olds sure. uh, the early years phase um in in a lot of the primary education sort of you know, i don't know three four five six seven uh, six sorry I, yeah i think what what applies in secondary probably also applies largely in in primary so yeah i'm um I, I think you're right, and it was much the same for me as well. I mean, I didn't... It's a lot to ask a teacher to do still, to to keep in mind all the varied interests and <laughs> things that all these different kids in your class have, and especially in secondary, where you teach more than just the same 30. But then try to find a way to weave that into all your lessons and teaching, and, and that might not actually aid the, the ultimate goal again, thinking back to that sort of objective-orientated mindset, yes. as opposed to just the process of being in the moment and... Yeah, I, that, that's a, where that's where I am with that one. Yeah, but. I mean, largely the same place. It was an interesting way to finish uh, finish the festival. It was, anyway. it was, and um, definitely a, a very entertaining presenter. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. And um, Chris, before we we say bye, is there anything you want to just tell listeners about Uplearn? Because I, I've been lucky enough to see some of the stuff you're working on, and I know you've uh, since we last spoke. Uh, mm. When I properly interviewed you, uh, you've actually launched the maths part of it now, right? We have, yeah. We have uh, we have a year twelve pure course, so uh, that's one third of the A level. Um, we have uh, a variety of like, students who've independently bought into it, but also there've been there's been a lot of interest actually. It, this is kind of strange for me because we was obviously I'm obsessed with schools and educa- school education, but um, I was prepared to accept that up there, and we we're priced really for. Uh, low-cost alternative to tuition. It's yep. not really as inex- as cheap as other um, platforms that would usually target schools are. And, and yet, despite that, we've had huge amounts of interest from schools, actually. And oh, right. um, So we've got several schools, several academy trusts. Have so been, kind of uh, like buying it for each of their kids and stuff? Yeah, and sometimes I know that our head of development, Tom Stevenson, is uh, quite generous with some of the deals that he ah, offers to I schools see. as well to... Yes to recognize that look you're going to get a big bunch of kids on there and um we know school budgets are are, are a bit different and um and then the relationship's a bit different because it's uh, you've kind of divided customer and consumer a bit so i think he's always prepared to to move things around a little and also a lot of schools that we've been working with as well have high uh, numbers of kids on free school meals and so we are also a social enterprise so for everyone who's purchased a license we offer uh one to a child on free school meals for free and for, for those schools where they've got high FSM intake, that usually helps discount what they're providing. Um, yeah, and actually, we, we, I mean, we are, we're struggling to meet our FSM quota. We have licenses. We are trying to find people to take up and give away. And we, just, we need more people to come and take them off our hands. We're, 
offering it for free in that part. But so yeah, so we've got that. We're working on um, the other parts of maths at the moment on a year 13 pure, which we're hoping to have out this year. Um, statistics and mechanics, we're hoping to start on, but we'll see how that goes with the the operational side of things. Uh, working on psychology and working on physics for another we've got a full physics course but we're producing another one for another exam board and lots of economics as well now uh, edexcel and aqa economics is out there as full courses um and we keep hearing lots of positive things from lots of people which is very reassuring and it makes what we do so exciting and uh it, it's yeah it's a really great organization to be a part of it's a great team fantastic and you'll be back on the, you're contractually obliged to come back on the podcast next year <laughs> for parts three and four of uh, our never-ending conversation we've, we've not got through anywhere near the we number haven't. of interview questions uh, and i keep <laughs> thinking of more to ask you so uh, you'll be back but i just want to say always thank, a pleasure thank i just want to say thank you for giving up your time at the end of uh, busy days it's it's been an absolute treat speaking to you chris absolutely my pleasure likewise thank you Craig. and thank you for listening and i'll be back if you're listening to this live uh, well on the actual friday uh, you'll be hearing from me again tomorrow night because uh, mm-hmm. after maths conf now i'm going from piers morgan to joe morgan as i'm going to be uh, doing a conference takeaway where we joe at the end of the manchester maths conference so thank you so much for listening i hope you find these useful and i will uh, see you soon bye for now